Welcome to Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. This is episode 124, Qatar's World Cup and the West's Moral Dilemma. So, look, the World Cup's coming and I'm super excited. I really, really am. This is my favorite month of every four years. I, I, I just am always beside myself at how much football I'm going to be able to watch. It's one of the greatest things. Of course, this tournament has brought with it a whole bunch of baggage, and it's been very, very interesting to monitor that and check it out and listen and and just see the way different people are approaching how this World Cup is going to go and what happened in the past for it to get here. So recently, I've been just noticing a lot of journalists Uh, mentioning just their conflicting emotions about going into what is supposed to be the greatest show on earth. And I've listened to a lot of the podcasts from The Athletic, and The Athletic Football Podcast is one that I really like. Mark Chapman is the host of. And in a recent episode, the most recent episode that they did about uh, the World Cup, how did we get here, he spoke with three journalists from the publication, Alex K. Jelski, Laura Williamson, and Matt Slater. And it's very interesting uh, to hear their different points of view. But just the initial question of how do you feel going into this? And Alex Kajelski said, I just wish it didn't come with everything, with this massive asterisk, I suppose. Laura Williamson, she said something very similar. She said, everything comes with an asterisk. It's been a real moral dilemma whether I should go as a woman. Look, that's understandable and fair. If you're a Western woman and you're going to go to a conservative Muslim country, I can understand that there's you know a certain level of trepidation for you in some ways. But if you research and listen to the way Qatar is, and let's be honest, this is a World Cup. They're not trying to put people in jail. They are not trying to make the entire international community come and feel repulsed and, and un, unwelcome. That is not what they want to do. So that's something we have to just remember. The problem is the amount of baggage that enjoying the World Cup seems to be for people. I mean, look, will a part of one's soul like just erode with every single goal celebration? Uh, If you wake up at 3 a.m. like I will be to watch a match, does that mean a part of you dies inside? Like this is just getting a little bit extreme. I I think that the human rights issues being highlighted is a really, really good thing. Okay. Uh, In the buildup to most major events, you can make a case that there's some people who've been mistreated in the organization. I mean, fire festivals, one of my favorite ones uh, outside of football, but then in sporting events, there's always something. There's always, I mean, Brazil had issues with the, the stadium in Manaus in Brazil is one that people will always come back to as a ton of money was spent to create this, this infrastructure, and it's barely used anymore. These are legitimate questions to ask, and I think it's very fair, and it's very good for us to have stayed up to date with what's going on with migrant workers in the country, that laws, that human rights associations went in and actually helped establish and change laws that would protect these people. Is it perfect? Definitely not. Is it better than it was before? From what we understand, yes. The issue is, obviously, it's hard to keep talking about these messages once the game gets going because once it gets going and believe me once this gets going it's going to be fast four games a day it's going to be very difficult 
to continuously come back to human rights issues, LGBT issues, women's rights issues, when there are four matches a day. And we know the way the footballing community reacts quickly to things. It's going to take over. Gianni Infantino did not need to say just focus on the football. He should have kept his mouth shut because that just got him into trouble. Honestly, that's going to happen on its own. The issues that are being brought up are important, should not be ignored, should not be forgotten once the ball is kicked, and especially once the circus leaves town. It's good to talk about these things. It's good to report on these things worldwide, every single country, because that is how we generate more of a cross-cultural understanding, and that's how changes around the world do get made and how we become more of an international community. However, asking players and managers what they will do to affect change in Qatari law and culture, to me, is a bridge too far. These are not questions that are being put in front of the football associations or government officials to anywhere near the same extent as Gareth Southgate is having to deal with it. And like, as usual, these explanations are being demanded from people with no expertise in the matter or really powerful to do anything but talk about it and post about it on their social media platforms or the vocal platform they have, whatever it is. The funny thing is that sports people frequently are told to shut up when they talk about politics and to stick to the sport, basically unless it suits the media's narrative a lot of the time, right? If you were a conservative footballer, you you don't want to come out and talk politics. The media is going to hammer you for saying that you voted for the the Republican candidate or the conservative candidate. They all have to stay away from that because that's not where the media wants to take it. So they have to keep their mouths shut about some things, but are expected to get on top of the rooftops and speak about others. The world just asking them, solve our problems with your platform, speak up and make change. It doesn't really work that way. And a lot of the time we're asking people who have we're just not equipped to deal with it. For instance, Gareth Southgate, well, one thing he was recently asked in a press conference was if Iran should be banned from the World Cup due to you know current upheaval in the country over morality, p- police beating women to death for improperly wearing their hijabs, which is awful. And then, of course, there is the arms support that they're providing to Russia for the war in Ukraine. Understandably, the West does not like this. There's some people who feel Iran should also be banned from the World Cup. To ask Gareth Southgate this question as manager of England, just because England will be playing Iran, again, too far. Now, the debate on this is very interesting to me, and it's got two sides that can be argued. So on one hand, if you were to ban Iran, it would send a message, you know, that the international community will not stand for the kinds of things that are happening and the kinds of support that they're giving. And that's in hopes that the ruling class of the country, the government, that they'll make changes to what they're doing so that they're not sanctioned or suffer economic consequences or political backlash down the line. Now, Iran has been sanctioned so many times by the West and haven't changed anything that I don't think that would work. The other side of it is if you sanction and hit these countries, a lot of the time you just isolate them more and it becomes even harder for political dissenters and dissidents uh, to be heard because the regime just quashes them down and no one's listening or thinking or talking about it. 
So having Iran at the World Cup makes it easier to talk about it. Banning them entirely, well, it just puts it in the closet, doesn't it? It doesn't. It, it just sweeps it under the rug, and it doesn't really do anything. Which is where we get into the really obvious issue of purity standards that are just hypocritical. On this this podcast, Mark Chapman asked Alex Kajelski, what about when somebody said to you four years ago, Alex, are you looking forward to the World Cup in Russia? Are you looking forward to the Winter Olympics in China? What about the next World Cup in America? You know, did you enjoy the Joshua fight in Saudi Arabia? Do you go shopping at Sainsbury's? I love that he love that he mentioned that last one because it is complex and it really is difficult if you were going to draw really strong lines and purity standards for yourself and everybody else, you'll find at a certain point that you're kind of being hypocritical because you blur the lines of one and not the other. Now, Kajelski, he answered this series of questions that Mark Chapman asked him by saying that journalists, what they're doing is just trying to keep bringing up the information sort of as they have with the Newcastle takeover to present this information to the public so that we, the public, can make up our minds about the issues and feel that we have all of the information to base our opinions off of. Okay, so that's basically a journalist saying he's carrying out his normal, basic professional duties. But he didn't answer the direct question about the difference between Qatar and Russia. And again, very few people seem to want to touch this one. Chapman asked Laura Williamson the exact same question. He said, are there more questions going into this World Cup than there were, say, of going into the Russian World Cup or the Chinese Winter Olympics? Do you think there are? And if so, why? Fantastic question. Really good. The answer, she said, I think there are. One key difference with this World Cup is it's been coming for a really long time. And also the change in schedule. I mean, who would have thought we would end up with a World Cup in November? The question was, are there more questions going into this World Cup than there were about the Russian World Cup or the Chinese Winter Olympics? And her answer was, it's been coming for a long time, and we never thought we'd have a World Cup in November. That does not answer the question whatsoever, Laura. Sorry. And she goes on to say that the, that London only had a seven-year notice before hosting the Olympics because they had mentioned that the Olympics in England, there were you know a bunch of questions being asked about... Uh, facilities and whether it made sense for economics and there was terrorism at the time, all kinds of things like that. But her answer is irrelevant. And again, it dodges the question in a very biased fashion. It's like, well, you know, with the UK, we only had seven years to prepare for the London Olympics. They've had like 12 to prepare for this. And it's in November. I mean, uh, so that's what you've got. I mean, look, the timing of this competition is not ideal for the British, apparently. So I guess it must be wrong. I don't know. Look, I have to wake up at 3 a.m. for the first time slots of matches. So I'm really not sympathetic to the what time of day games are complaint. That is that is ridiculous. Okay. I mean, does anyone not remember that there was a World Cup in Japan and South Korea in 2002? Uh, That was infernal. I mean, it was like wake up at 1, 4, Like, the last game was like a 7 a.m. time slot. It was ridiculous for me in Colorado, right? Uh, Does this mean Asia should never host a World Cup again or that, you know, it should only be in Western European time zones? I know that this World Cup was moved primarily 
because of the weather. That it gets like 120 in the summers in Qatar, and it'll be much cooler than that, around 80 in the 80s during the wintertime. Now, that means, hey, climate change is happening, right? So apparently if the world's heating up, uh, are there going to be places that during the summer are just not doable for the World Cup? Even if they're total football nations. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, will certain African countries be able to host World Cups at certain times or will they have to change it? I mean, th- th- there, there are valid questions to be asked. But also, is it fair to say, well, the weather is too hot there during this time of year, so you should never be able to host it? Why not be able to make a change? Why not put it in the wintertime? A lot of people say that one of the issues with the wintertime is we have more injuries than ever before. I'd say that's probably down more to the general football calendar and the way it's been scrunched together. But, I mean, to say that Qatar's World Cup is the reason why so many players are injured, it's ridiculous. I mean, there's so many players who I've seen at World Cups who put in a crazy long season with their clubs and are knackered by the time the tournament starts, right? They're on their 11th month of football. There's players who got injured in the last few months of a season to not be able to go to the World Cup. One of the players I was most excited for in 2002 with France was Robert Pires, and he got injured. He was Premier League Player of the Year that season, was awarded the uh, that title sometime in April, and it was after he had actually torn his knee ligaments. And he didn't go to the World Cup with France, and he was like France's best player around at that point. And... I've seen it many, many times. Players who get injured not long before the start of a tournament. I don't think this in particular, this World Cup being midseason is why. The football calendar over uh, overall is why. So moving on to a different um, angle here. I, I'd say a little bit more of the hyperbole that we sometimes see. On Football 365, a guy called Andy Bolin... Uh, wrote an article, and the iron frustration that he has surrounding this World Cup being hosted by Qatar is palpable. It's strong. And he uses some pretty colorful and dramatic takes to say it. So, and I quote, A derided and decried World Cup played in such brutal climate and unrelenting heat? Who wants to qualify for a World Cup there? The climate was always first. Qatar's atrocious human rights record and treatment of migrant workers, women's rights, gay rights, and the death penalty for farting were way down the list. Okay, can I address one thing real quick? First of all, when he said who wants to qualify for a World Cup there, let me answer that. Every player and every country wanted to qualify for the World Cup there. Those who are happily boycotting it didn't qualify in the first place. Let's just be clear on that, okay? The problem that I have with this article is that he started to seem to, in every paragraph, mix humor with gener- with a genuine problem. And that makes it difficult to understand. Check this out. He says, it's going to be like a winter wedding, only hot, very hot, melting hot. The kind of heat that will see the assistant referee's time at an on clock melt like a Dali painting. The accommodation switch for the 22nd World Cup to November and December gets the temperature down to a cool 80 degrees. Well, for a man from Britain, I'm, I'm, I assume you think 80 is just insanely hot, but 80 is pretty nice. It's pr- pretty nice. It's a lot better than 120. So let's be clear about that. 
either way, this hyperbole is commonplace. This is what a lot of journalists and pundits do. They have loud voices. They have big platforms. So these are the things that they say to try and really get a rise out of people that, that something is hor- horrifically wrong here. Bolin then goes on to blur the lines even more when between jokes and being serious when he compels the readers of the article to not smuggle cocaine into the country because it could mean a death sentence. Uh, thanks for the advice, Andy. Um, I, I, I don't know how that's helpful. I don't think very many people were considering trying to drink, bring hard drugs into Qatar. Obviously, he seems to be joking about this, but that's the problem. Then he goes and has some very distasteful choice words for stadium design. Check this out. The 2022 World Cup opens on Saturday, November 20th, in the Al Bayt Stadium in Al Khor, Qatar. The host will face Ecuador in Group A. The stadium looks less like a football stadium and more like a huge retail park TK Maxx with a gargantuan traditional Bedouin tent on top. It was, espi- it was inspired by the Bayt al Shar, the tents of nomadic people. The Bayt al Shar is traditionally regarded as a welcoming site and considered a symbol of hospitality. I wonder why a giant Bedouin tent in the desert would look like, you know, hospitality and a welcome site. Of course it would be a welcome site out in the desert to see a big tent like that. That'd be great. I'm sure, I'm sure that that's where this comes from, right? Just his tone on that's a little weird, especially calling it a huge retail park TK Maxx with a Bedouin tent on top. Just, you know, it's just not great, right? But then he goes off the edge right here, in my opinion. The stadium was built by German architect Albert Speer Jr., the son of Albert Speer, Hitler's chief architect who became Minister of Armaments and War Production for the Third Reich during World War II. Further outbreaks of myopia with this guy too. Yes, the son of Hitler's architect. Now late, he passed in 2017. I mean, this is quite the yarn to spin. Look, it's similar to Benito Mussolini's grandson, Romano Benito Floriani Mussolini. That's his, that's his full name. Uh, He plays for Lazio, and this caught the attention of certain people in the media last year who questioned whether or not he should be allowed to play with the name Mussolini on his shirt. And the reason why is people are scared that if people see that name, they'll just get triggered, they'll they'll get emboldened, they'll reignite far-right politics, and fascists will just come out of the woodworks everywhere. It's, It's wild. The, the club are standing by him, which is great, but this whole thing is just an example of how quickly historical figures will be used to tag someone with like a guilty association and then, you know, those individuals who are living in the present, not the past, are at risk of being canceled just for who someone else was in their life and, you know, who, who their dad was, who whatever. It's a very strange thing. And Andy Bullen, his final rant in this article about Qatar goes on to show just how loath the West is to see an Arab World Cup, in my opinion. He says, I can't name a football team from Qatar. I know current Barcelona coach Xavi once managed them there. Again, big money, big name. You could argue that's my problem. I I should know. But we are talking about the pinnacle of the beautiful game, one which comes together in a festival of football every four years. The greatest show on earth? Not anymore. The competition should surely be held in a place where football means something, not just a prop for the highest bidder. When you look into Qatar, there's no established high-profile national sporting success. If I say New Zealand, you'd say rugby. Canada, ice hockey. 
USA, American football, basketball, or baseball. Qatar, you'd struggle beyond any traditional nomadic-based sports like Arabian horse racing, camel racing, or falconry. Any popular pastimes like cricket are due to expats from India and Pakistan. Qatar does not have 100 to 150 years of football culture. That's why so many new stadiums have been built. FIFA should have canceled the World Cup in Qatar, brought it to Europe, and given the proceeds to Ukraine, UNICEF, war refugees, and the poor. I mean, wild quote there. And to be honest, like there is a space between just between actually sounding off alarms about atrocities that are happening and then just slandering a country and entire culture, especially their desire to achieve something and become a footballing nation. Like that's, that's what they're in a way, what they're trying to do here. There's more to what they're trying to do, but that is a huge part of it. They're trying to actually put themselves on the map. So to say they're not allowed to host the event just because they have money, it should be somewhere that has already done the world cup. That's fair to a certain degree. I've said, that if an Arab country was going to host the World Cup, Qatar really isn't the best one because they don't, they've never qualified. They don't really have a history. But the funny thing is when you look back at what was going on when this bid was done, right? Like I would say Egypt or Iran would be great countries for it because they do have deep, you know, or Morocco. The funny thing is Northern Africa and a lot of the Middle East, right around the time of bidding is when the Arab Spring was happening. So safety in these countries was far from guaranteed. Qatar is very safe and they have a lot of money and they're willing to build the infrastructure. So they were pretty much the only Arab country that made sense and they won it. Uh, what I'm, the whole point here is that you've got to be a little careful. And it was hard for me to read this article that he wrote without wondering, like, did nobody tell you that you're coming off like a little racist or imperious at times, bro. Like, I mean, to talk about the tent style stadium as looking like a retail park and, you know, to, to talk about how there's no history of any kind of sporting culture and that the only thing it would be would be some kind of Arabic thing like camel racing or falconry. This does not sound good. It doesn't sound good. And I'm not trying to be really nitpicky about this, but when you are going out of country to this degree, if you want to make jokes, you can make jokes. But if you're going to be serious about it as well, you have to, you have to ride a line, pick a lane on this one, really the Aspire Academy, for anyone who doesn't know, this was created in Qatar. It is literally a football academy and it is a football academy on steroids in terms of like the investment and money and facilities. It's unbelievable. But they've hosted youth tournaments and by the way, in there they've produced their entire generation of players that you will see at this World Cup. So there is a desire for Qatar to have done this and to try to do it as well as possible. They're aspiring to do something. The academy is called the Aspire Academy. They're aspiring to do something. It wouldn't be so bad of us to accept that and not view it with so much derision, right? So according to the media, this tournament will have a massive asterisk next to it. Um, what does that mean? I don't know. If Lionel Messi lifts the trophy in a month's time, will it be regarded as like 
uh, a tainted milestone for his career because migrant workers died in the buildings of the stadiums and because LGBT rights have not come around to Western standards. That That's not what people are going to say. So what is the asterisk? I mean, I suppose really what it is is there's a conflict for so many of these journalists. And they're employed to write about football, but they also really want to focus on the human rights issues, almost more so. And they keep repeating the message that we have to keep talking about these things, even if Neymar does something extraordinary, right? This is a question about your job title and your responsibility. Like, I would expect a writer from, for example, the New York Times, whose daily work is writing about human rights issues, politics, global issues, migrant worker issues, like people who actually write about this consistently, I would expect to go and do a lot of the digging here. I'm sure that there are LGBTQ publications who will be on site and will want to ask questions, and hopefully they'll be able to do so and get some good answers. All of that's logical. But when you are a sports journalist and you work for, as a football writer for The Athletic, that is your job title, yeah, it's going to be really, really difficult for you to go there and write about one and not the other. But should sports journalists be expected to, or even expect themselves to be writing about the politics in every article or feel like they're not doing their job? I mean, I I don't think that the sports journalists should feel a desperate need to constantly be going back to this because hopefully there are other journalists there doing the same thing. Now, I think it's great for them to talk about it. I think it's great to incorporate that. But I think there's going to be a real fatigue from people if there is just a constant, constant stream of not talking about football and telling people that to just think about the football is wrong morally. This brings me to what happened in China for the Winter Olympics. The Chinese Uyghurs were pretty much categorically ignored during the entire tournament, during the entire Winter Olympics. Those were awful to watch, by the way. And the state of the atmosphere, it was stale, it was awful, it was a COVID-era event, right? There were, like, very few people went or were able to go. Uh, Very few people tuned in because it was just kind of cringe. It'd be all quiet, and then in the stands you'd have, you know, a bunch of Chinese people waving little flags six feet apart. It's like, you kind of get a feeling like they were placed there um, just for optics, because things were under such tight control at the time. The thing is that people, journalists especially, knew better than to poke the bear that is Xi Jinping's establishment, and literally no athletes were asked a single question by journalists about the Uyghurs and their being put in concentration camps for their religious beliefs. That was not being asked. And I would imagine you can be sure that they were put on very strict notice, these journalists, that they are not back home. They have to respect Chinese rule of law and what is okay to say and what is not, like what is legal to say and not. The risk of being imprisoned for questions you ask looms pretty large. And your behavior, if you're a social justice warrior or an activist or whatever, it changes when that threat is bigger in a place like China. And a place like Russia. Nobody really dared question Russia's 2014 invasion of Crimea as the World Cup in 2018 approached. I mean, I, I'm sure there were some people who talked about it and asked about it, but it really was not front and center. And it's kind of hard to see how much media outrage there'll be if the U.S. were to bomb a sovereign nation between now and 2026. Which is possible, let's be honest. 
And now you ask yourself, what questions will be asked between January 2023 and June 2026? Specifically about conditions in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, right? Canada, I, I, I don't know where it's at right now. Will athletes be allowed to enter without a COVID vaccine in 2026? I certainly hope so. But what if there's sticky points there? But Canada's mostly fine. The real issues really happen in the United States and Mexico. There's a massive crisis at the southern border with migrants, people who are just stuck there, people being separated from their kids. It hasn't it didn't look good under Trump. It doesn't look good under Biden either. These people are fleeing cartel-controlled communities throughout Central America, not just in Mexico. Uh, how safe people feel in certain places in Mexico really has to do with where the cartel is operating and what they're doing there. A lot of this stems from U.S. war on drugs. Uh, then you've got the migrant worker issues where states like California and Texas produce an enormous amount of food and need a lot of migrant work for the agriculture. The thing about these migrant workers who are from Central American countries, they don't have U.S. citizenship. They are not allowed to just do whatever they want once they're in the United States working for the company. They, they also, a lot of them, have documentation kept on hold so that they can't just escape and they can't just change jobs. It's not much different than the kafala system that was set up in Qatar. It, it is a little bit different because there's a lot more legality around it. But these people are not being paid very well. The work is absolutely brutal. And it's not being talked about much considering the fact that they're feeding the country. Right. And Texas and California, both states that are dealing with not just that migrant work issue, but also the issues at the southern border, they're going to be hosting uh, two cities each, those states. How about San Francisco, Los Angeles? Will, will people call them into question for just the astronomical wealth disparities that exist in those cities? I mean, are there going to be people going, uh, Skid Row, what exactly is this? It's the United States. How on earth is this existing in downtown L.A.? San Francisco, it's similar. There's open-air drug scenes in these cities. Crime has gotten out of control. Are they going to be asked, is this safe for foreigners to come here? Is it, is it right for if you're treating your citizens like this that you should be allowed to welcome the world? It's a valid question, right? And this is the thing is there's perhaps a feeling of guilt for a lot of Westerners who are decrying this Qatar's oil money and calling it blood money. Look, money's money. If it's oil money, it's oil money. Uh, let's be clear. After all, Qatar is just a very small country. It's extremely wealthy per capita. There's 300,000 inhabitants who benefited from the sale of oil and gas largely to who? Western Europe. So who paid for the World Cup? The West. The West did. Qatar is a country, they just want to be seen. Not just to be able to host a tournament, but also to garner friends in the global community with an eye on creating a post-oil economy and the ability to be autonomous and safe from their neighbors and foreign forces while having strong ties that help the region grow as a whole. And these nations, they don't want to be left behind when the West goes like full renewable energy and full electric vehicle, right? They're planning for the future. They want to put themselves on the map now. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, Qatar's only border uh, was mostly closed since 2017 when Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the UAE, and Bahrain launched a blockade against them. Uh, they were accusing them as, of 
supporting Islamic terrorism and having close ties with Iran, which coming from Saudi Arabia, that one's ironic. That one is ironic. Considering Saudi Arabia is involved in genocide in Yemen and also, what, 9-11, we know that this is pretty much a Saudi operation. So basically they stopped trade with Qatar, which forced Qatar to have to get products from elsewhere. They relied on that border for dairy products, construction materials, and other goods. And if you look at Qatar on a map, it's literally a tiny little thumb sticking out of what the massive country of Saudi Arabia. They have nowhere to go. The only times that the border was open was like from time to time so that Qataris could go into Saudi Arabia to perform the Islamic Hajj pilgrimage. But that was it. Other than that, they were forced to import from other places from further away, which would just drive up the cost of everything. Now, the crazy part of this is part of the reason this blockade actually happened was because Qatar, when they first started being investigated by lawyers and by FIFA and stuff, should they keep the tournament, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Iran, the UAE, they started to jump in and be like, hey, we'll do a joint bid together. And Qatar said, no, we want to do this ourselves. And that's right around then is when the blockade happened. So these countries don't like them. Not really. There's not the greatest feeling and vibe between them. So Matt Slater of The Athletic, he gave a really interesting insight on this. And I, I, I loved these quotes because I think they, they help you understand where this country is at. And he's saying that he didn't think that Qatar, he didn't think, I open quote, Qatar really saw this as a classic pure sports washing venture. This is notice us. This is a long-term Qatari project to be noticed, to be taken seriously, and to be looked after. They're squeezed between Saudi, Iran, UAE, people that don't like them, people that want their gas, people that might roll over the border if no one cared about Qatar. So interesting to me, that quote, because it, it, it's, it's exactly what so many marginalized groups around the world say and how they feel and what they want to do to make sure that they're safe. I've heard this for years, and it's understandable. I mean, the LGBT community and activists have done a great job of this. Like, here we are. We're here. I mean, one of the major things towards getting the – one of the major pushes towards getting uh, the uh, Gay Rights Voting Act through in the United States was a big come out day. Tell everyone if you're gay so that people know and they don't demonize you. Like, be seen so that you aren't as easily attacked. It's, 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 it's a wise way to go, and – it's totally valid. Um, but it's kind of interesting how while Qatar is trying it, people don't seem to like it very much. And, you know, Western Europeans, the British especially, they, they, they love to, to rag on countries for the situations. I mean, there were people who thought that Brazil should not host the 2014 World Cup because Zika was going around. It's insane, right? But I think it's the the reality of what created the bidding pro what was the bidding process and what created the Qatar world cup for 2022 really it was dirty in all corners, but it, it is how it happened is what really gets people's goes. So he explained a little bit more about how the de Matt Slater explained a little bit more about how the delegates in FIFA <laughs> once the bid was announced and that, He's quote unquote people in the room when Qatar's name was pulled out of the envelope just literally couldn't believe it. There was a there was certainly a view, I think particularly among the American camp who came second and were the favorites that this just couldn't happen and that FIFA would come to its senses, be it the weather or just the same just the amount of infrastructure that needed to be built. 
And I think the American bid thought that it was coming to them at some point. This also had coincided with the FBI raiding FIFA's offices and nailing all these people. At that point, a lot of us thought, oh, now it's going to get changed. But still, Qatar has, they have withstood every single push to have the World Cup taken away from them. You got to hand it to them. That's, that's pretty interesting. So Matt Slater goes on to explain that that investigation that was performed, that they were looking for grounds to take the tournament away from Qatar. But there wasn't because wrongdoing was discovered by all of the bidders, England, the United States, Morocco, but that, quote unquote, Qatar had played the game. They'd been a bit cute. They'd been a bit smart and they got wrapped on the knuckles, but not enough to redo the process. And here we are. Four days from the start of the greatest show on earth, the World Cup, my favorite tournament. And my genuine hope is that for anyone who goes, that they're able to see whatever it is that's going on, that they can bring a truth with them back, and that really that they have positive experiences. Because I had great experiences in Russia because it was wonderful to meet Russian people and talk to them and just get to know them a little bit. Most of them said, look, governments are governments. They don't represent us. They don't really represent the people. If you are someone who believes that all 300,000 Qataris do not value women or do not value migrant workers or do not value LGBTQ rights, I would, I would say you're probably wrong. I doubt, it's, I doubt that is the general entire feeling. Is there a curiosity among the Qataris to welcome the international community and also learn about different culture? Yes, but don't forget that they also do not want their own culture and their own country destroyed by just a bunch of people who just want to be there to watch football and criticize them for a month straight. They don't want that either. So there has to be a point where everyone understands what this is to stay in their lane to a certain degree and to just try and enjoy and make connections. Football is a very powerful agent for change, but it needs to be let to do its work. We cannot just try to politicize football. People don't like it. And the good thing is, for all of you listeners, I won't be doing an episode like this again for the next month. I'm going to enjoy just talking about the football. Not because I don't think that it's important to mention human rights issues, of course, that that is important, but I'm in no position really to do it. I'm sitting here in Denver, Colorado. I'm gonna be watching the World Cup from here. I will not be on the ground. I'm not an investigative journalist in that scenario, so I'm going to stay in my lane. What I hope is that anyone who goes, and I have a couple of people that I know who are going, that they are able to see that it really is not so bad. Because I think a lot of their own fears come from their perception of what a conservative Muslim country must be like. Again, I just hope that everyone can get along, enjoy this, and that though the political messages need to be brought out from time to time, that they don't dominate the sport. And I hope you can join me for the rest of this tournament. Thank you. I'm Sebastian North. This is Campfire Football. Take it easy.